Good morning. How are you? My name is Brian. For those of you who are new, pastor here, I'm really, really glad you're here. You're sitting next to some wonderful people. I'd like to say hello to those of you who are watching on us. I'm watching us online. We pick songs oftentimes because it just has the theme of Jesus, and it's a great song. But we play that song particularly because it's going to be the theme song for the series that we're starting today. Um, there is an inherent problem that we face as Christians in the 21st century, and we really wrestle with here. And it is there is a distinct difference between what is in our head and what is in our heart and what we actually do. Okay? So hear me out. That um, probably for those of us who are Christians here, uh, we don't have a problem with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Bible and heaven and angels and all that kind of stuff. Don't have a problem with that kind of stuff. But there is a, there is a distinct difference between um, what is in our heads and actually living the life of Jesus. That we have no problem with the beliefs of Jesus, what he believed. But what we have a disconnect with is how he actually lived his life fundamentally what he did on a day-in and day-out basis. And so because of that, it feels that even though we've given our lives to Jesus, we've been baptized, um, I asked our arts people to put this together so there better not be like dumbbells in here, that sort of thing. Okay, all right. That we, we feel utterly exhausted. And we feel like, that we have this, and I, the only way I can describe it is, have you ever felt like this weight, like on the back of your neck, and on, it's really on your mind, and on your heart, and your soul, and what it is, is it's this, pers- this pervasive exhaustion, okay, and I'm going to pull it this way, that way you get the gun show, okay, <laughs> all right, so we have this exhaustion, and the, the problem is what we do is we have given our lives to Jesus. We've become disciples, learners of Jesus. And what we do is we learn his teachings about like the afterlife and that sort of thing. But what we do is we completely ignore his life, how he actually lived and how he wants us to live today. And so as a result of that, what we do is in our heads there is this belief and this conviction that we're followers of Jesus. But in our hearts, how we actually live our lives, uh, Monday through Saturday, 24 hours a day, we live exactly like the culture. And the problem is, is that even though we've become Christians, we have got to the point where we're completely and utterly exhausted. So what we do is we take the prescriptions that the culture offers us. That's so that we do things like uh, Pareto, uh, Pareto's principle, the 80-20. Pareto was the Italian economist who, was, who, who used to say that if you're Noah and your ark is about to sink, look for the elephants first. You're looking for the big things that you're going to knock out of your schedule, that there is a disproportionate relationship between the, what is exerted and what happens. Anyway, so we'll, we'll, we'll apply that. We'll apply like the... Um, what... Um, um, behavior analysts and uh, business leaders will call quadrant one, quadrant two, quadrant three, quadrant four. On the top quadrant, quadrant one and quadrant two are the things that are um, important. Quadrant one is important and urgent. 
quadrant two is important, but it's not urgent. And we want to live, we want to get stuff done in quadrant one, but we want to live in quadrant two. And we want to eliminate quadrant three, urgent and unimportant. And we want to eliminate urgent and unimportant things. So what we want to do is we have these things where we're going to get um, the full focus planner from Michael Hyatt. And we're going to apply quadrant one and quadrant two principles to our lives. And we're going to analyze our priorities and our responsibilities according to Pareto principle. And all of this is borrowed by the culture. All of these are techniques that are borrowed by the culture. And it doesn't eliminate this. All it does is it makes this more manageable. There's a lady I follow on Twitter that said, um, Dear teachers, my kids can show up with their pants on or they can show up on time, but they will not show up with both. Okay? They will not show up with their pants on on time. So you get to choose which one you want, right? And she was pointing to the exhaustion we feel. And there are three areas where we're exhausted. We're exhausted in the expectations that we have for ourselves. That most of us live with this pervasive feeling constantly. And we get books sold to us constantly. There's the life that we're living but there's the life that we want to live, and there's this disconnect, and they're constantly promising this difference. The problem is the prescription that we're given. The other area is not just expectations, but it's also our commitments that we have. We have the inability to discern what we should commit to, and my goodness, this is getting heavy, what we should not commit to. And so we feel overwhelmed. We feel like our schedules are completely full. We never have time for ourselves. And the last thing that we struggle with is depth in our relationships and knowing who we should spend time with. That we know a lot of different people, but we're never known by a lot of different people. And the people that we should be spending time with and investing time with, we don't spend time with those people. We spend time with other people. And we ask ourselves, what is the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem is we are exhausted and we keep using techniques and tools from the culture to fix this. And God comes along and says, forget the culture. I have a completely, utterly different way of living. If you listen to me, you'll drop that. Oh, that felt good. You will drop that. So we feel exhausted, but yet we're doing everything we believe we're supposed to be doing as Christians. And the other thing that we struggle with comes from something that happened 11 years ago. I'm going to watch, I'm going to, I want you to watch this video. And if you remember the rollout from Steve Jobs and Apple of this product, take a look. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that, about that. changes everything. And Apple has been, well, first of all, one's very fortunate if you get to work on just one of these in your career. Apple's been very fortunate. It's been able to introduce a few of these into the world. 1984. We introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple. It changed the whole computer industry. (laughs) 
In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't just, it didn't just change the way we all listen to music. It changed the entire music industry. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So, three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Now, I want you to lean over to the person next to you. You have 20 seconds. And I want you to share one positive thing that came as a result of the iPhone and then the smartphone, the knockoff of that, but also one negative thing. I'll give you a minute. One positive thing and then one negative thing. Go. All right, 20 seconds. All right, let me see some hands. What are some positive things that happened with the invention of a smartphone? Yes. You don't get lost anymore, right? Absolutely. GPS, yeah. Uh, yes. You can FaceTime. Instant communication. Those of you who have loved ones that are at a distance, you know the value of FaceTime to be able to do that. Any others? The, what's that? Oh, excellent. The technology to be able to help and assist um, uh, uh, children with special needs, adults with special needs. Any others? I can work from anywhere. You can work from anywhere. Which is part of the... Okay, now let's talk about the negative things. You can work from anywhere. What else? What are the, <laughs> what are the negative things? Yes, all the way in the back. I can't hear you. What? You're self-absorbed, okay? What else? It's expensive. GPS makes you dumb. It's harsh. 
That's harsh, Healy. That is some harsh words. Let me tell you something that happened. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a thought leader. His, his name is Cal Newport. He wrote a, a, a book, uh, I believe back in 2012, called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is counterintuitive advice to making your career work. Uh, my favorite book of his was a book called Deep Work, where he analyzed the impact of social media. He analyzed the impact of our smartphones. And one thing that he said, which startled me, Beginning 11 years ago on college campuses, there was an explosion in anxiety-related disorders, a virtual epidemic of kids that were going off who were then raised with these smartphone devices, going off to colleges, and then going to the nurses and the doctors and asking for help and asking for prescriptions, an explosion of anxiety-related disorders. That is directly tied. It's not a correlation. It is a causation. What we have is a blessing and a curse in our pockets. It has the ability to make our lives easier. It also has the ability, particularly for young girls, to distort your body image, your perception of who you are, your value, your worth. It has the ability to take people who think that they're becoming more productive to turn their life into a Pavlovian cocaine pedal experiment where we're constantly pressing the email. We're constantly hitting the button. We're constantly... Social media, as Cal Newport um, uh, points out very aptly, it was designed by people who make gaming devices in Las Vegas. They were designed at the very beginning to become addictive, to base, to, to draw upon our base instincts and get us to repetitively check and to feel a stimulation because of the things that are happening. And so my point is simply this. There are lots of things in our culture that are weighing us down. Exhaustion, our schedule, expectations, anxiety, and what we keep doing is we keep going to the culture for a prescription to fix this, and there's a disconnect for those of us who are Christians because the solution is found in Jesus. And I'm not talking about some stupid Sunday school principle where everybody's like, oh, Jesus is the answer. Shut up, okay? No. And this is actually the answer what I want to talk about today, and it's a series that we're calling Right Sizing. And it's about taking not the beliefs of Jesus, but the behavior and the lifestyle of Jesus, how Jesus actually lived, how he actually lived his life, and to use that as a model to right-size our lives down to a manageable size. And so next week what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about using the life of Jesus to determine not... Quadrant one, two, three, four, not the Pareto principle and the, all, these, all this kind of stuff. No, the life of Jesus, how he lived his life when it comes to the choices that we're going to make about the commitments that we're making. The last week we're going to talk about our relationships that we're not going to turn to popular books and podcasters and different authors about how we're going to 
manage our relationships. We're going to look at the actual life of Jesus and the choice he made to manage that. And today what we're going to talk about is expectations and the thing that undergirds all of this. And so the foundational text we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 11. Um, Let me go ahead and I'll read that. It says this. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Now, I just want to say the word woe is an Old Testament word that prophets used when they, it was called a pro- prophetic indictment, when they were pronouncing judgment. Woe to you is God's judgment on you that God's going to start blowing stuff up. Jewish people knew that's what, that's what a prophet was speaking, and God was ticked, and he was going to start blowing stuff up. Jesus reaches the point where he says, woe to you, some bad things are going to start happening. And then he says, Chorazin, which means nothing to us, but it was one of the towns that he spent most of the time with. So he's talking to all of his friends and his neighbors. Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, which he's like saying, woe to you, Royersford, woe to you, Spring City. In a second, he will say, woe to you, Capernaum, which is the hometown in which he lived, Woe to you, all of the people I'm spending time with. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two port port towns on the Mediterranean, and they were like the Las Vegas of the day in the sense that licentious, immoral behavior went on there. And he's simply saying, you, I lived with you and I did miracles with you. And all of my friends and neighbors... If the miracles had been done among the whole of the people in these immoral towns where the sailors would come and they would have a lot, two weeks to blow a lot of money and there were prostitutes everywhere and all kinds. If the if miracles happened there, they would have completely changed their behavior, their life. But you, you're too smart. You're too smart for that. I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum, my hometown, my friends, some of my family members? Will you be lifted up to the heavens on judgment day? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the the day of judgment than for you. Hang with me now. There's, there's There's a... Point I want you to get. Hang with me. At that time then, Jesus immediately said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned people who live in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, all of these smart people who are wise and learned, and you revealed them to, and he uses a phrase for those of us who are his disciples, to the little children. The adults who are beyond my kind of teaching, who think it's too simplistic. They're too smart for me. My disciples are the little four-year-olds. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal The Father's ways. In other words, the Father made this world. He knows how life works. And he he secretly gave me the secrets. And I'm going to give them to the little children. But the people who are too educated and smart, who are going to listen to the culture about the way life works, 
just going to pass them by. And so then he says, come to me, little children. Come to me. Come here. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, which was a, a simple thing that was on the shoulders that either a person wore or two animals, two oxen. You basically put a piece of wood over the shoulders, and it yokes them together and enables them to be more productive together than apart. And so what we do is we either have this that allows us to take upon Jesus' teachings, or we're yoked together with Jesus. Take my yoke upon me, and listen, what it says. What does it say? Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find if you learn from me, if you act like little children and not like the educated people who are going to blow this off, if you learn from my life, what will happen? You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, a few weeks ago, I went to Israel. I've been wanting to go to Israel my whole life. I'm 31 years old. I've been wanting to do that my <laughs> whole life. I uh, went to Cairo first, hired an Egyptologist, a specialist in Egyptian studies. I wanted to see the birthplace of um, Moses' teaching and the people of God there. Um, not a big fan of Cairo. I love my Muslim friends. I hate what they do to women. Um, I hate what they do to women. Um, I hate... So, uh, Walid, the Egyptologist that I hired to go around with us, um, I, I hired him, and he took us around to all the different places. And one thing I noticed is that all the different Westerners, the Europeans or Americans or Canadians that would go around, French, whatever, that would go around in little tour groups, they always had one huge guy in front, one huge guy in back, and then they had something sticking in their coat which I found out they were carrying Uzis. And so everywhere we went, there were these Western groups that were fronted and in the rear by these huge bodyguards that had Uzis in their coats. But Waleed, didn't, we didn't have one. And so I asked Waleed, why don't we have a guy with an Uzi, Waleed? Um, he said, well, I think that they draw more attention than anything else. And I said, Waleed, I would have liked to have been given the choice, right? <laughs> I like Uzis. I like, I like having an Uzi when I feel like people want to kill me, right? Uh, so Cairo was not a, not a, a great uh, thing, um, but it was amazing, uh, but it was, it was frightening. And um, we went to Israel then, started out in Tel Aviv, um, which is like, gosh, it's like Ocean City um, uh, with Jewish, a whole bunch of Jewish people, you know? And uh, it was beautiful, stunning. We went from there, we went up to Megiddo, we went up to Mount Carmel, uh, where um, Elijah countered the prophets of Baal. We went through the Jezreel Valley, and the distance was Nazareth. We went to Nazareth, and then we went to Galilee, and we stayed probably four days in Galilee, retracing the steps of Jesus. Went to Jerusalem, which I went to Jerusalem. Once we went to Jerusalem, they went to Bethlehem. I saw essentially the walled-off places, the Palestinian territories, 
we had an opportunity. We're building a relationship with some Palestinian pastors, and they essentially told us we're in prison. And while I believe in the right for Israel to exist and the right for Israel to defend itself and the importance for the United States to be an ally of Israel, I'm absolutely and utterly disgusted with what they are doing to, their peop- to the Palestinian people, the way they're mistreated, uh, the way they're walling them off, and the way essentially they're, they're stripping away their human rights. It's really, really, really bad. And I don't know what the solution is because so many people within the Palestinian territories want to go and kill people. It's sort of like the Schuylkill River there. If you knew terrorists lived on the other side of the Schuylkill River and Hezbollah was going to come down from Iran into Syria and they were going to live across the river in Spring City, would you want that to happen? Of course you wouldn't want that to happen. But there's got to be a solution. Anyway, one of the questions that burned in my mind when I was going to Israel is I asked the question, why did Jesus move to Capernaum? Now, if you could show the map, can you show the map here? Jesus grew up and lived in Nazareth, but it says when he started his ministry, when he was 30 years of age, he moved to Capernaum, and that's where he lived for three years. He would go down to Jerusalem back and forth, but he lived in Capernaum. Now, I asked myself, why would he live in Capernaum? Why wouldn't he go to a city like four miles to the north of Nazareth called uh, Sepphoris, a forest, depends on how you, how you translate it, um, That was a modern-day city. Why didn't he go to Tiberias? Why would he go to Capernaum? 800 people, 1,000 people, little podunk town. Why would he do that? As I stood on the shore of Jesus' hometown, I took a one-minute video that I wanted to show you. And as you watch this, I want you to ask yourself the question, does this video answer why Jesus moved to Capernaum? Take a look. Jesus moved to Capernaum. Yeah, how do you feel right now? I want to ask three quick questions. The first is this. Do you know what is making you weary and burdened? What is it that's making you weary and burdened? Sometimes we don't even know. I think the easiest way to figure out what is making us weary and burdened is simply to look at the life of Jesus and what he did and then compare it to ours. Jesus walked everywhere he went. 
John chapter 4, he gets to Samaria, this well, sits down, and it says he's exhausted. He did things every day that just exhausted him, and he walked everywhere that he went. Jesus considered meals sacred. He never missed meals, and he never treated the people at the meals any different regardless of what was going on in their lives. He treated them as if it was an invitation to a banquet. Jesus worked with his hands. A few weeks ago, I was uh, completely and utterly overwhelmed, feeling like a failure. All of these expectations that I place upon myself, and I'm not getting most of them done. And I just was praying in my prayer time, at least, I'm, at least I can pray. And so in my prayer time, I just really felt God impress on my heart. I want you to go and move the wood pile. Got a bunch of wood, so we can throw in a wood burning stuff. Go, go move the wood pile. And so I did. And I spent the whole morning moving this massive wood, wood pile. And at the end of it, I felt, how do you think I felt? I felt exhausted and good about myself, but not just because I was physically doing it, but because I simply, it was okay for me to do just one thing that I felt that God wanted me to do. That I can have a whole list that I think everybody else wants me to do, but if I do the one thing God wants me to do, I just felt a tremendous sense of satisfaction and peace about that. Jesus made time for himself to pray and think. Jesus made stuff himself. He was a carpenter. We call people to fix stuff. When, when it's a birthday or an anniversary or it's Christmas or Easter, we give gifts that we go and buy rather than we make. He gave alms to the poor. I started reading that Matthew chapter 6 where it talks about when you give your alms to the poor, poor, and I'm like, I don't give alms to the poor. And alms is simply where you keep a certain amount of money in your pocket at all times, and when you encounter someone that's poor, you give it to them. And you tell them, I'm giving you this in Jesus' name. I've started doing that, keeping $10 in my wallet at all times. So anytime I see someone that's poor, it's 10 bucks is significant to me, but it's not like a tremendous amount of money, so it's an alm for me. And so now whenever I see someone that's poor, I don't want to let anybody else know. I just simply walk up to them, give them a hug, put this in the hand and say, I wish I could give you more, but I just wanted to let you know. I love you. Jesus loves you. He has a plan for your life. Please take this and go get your next meal. I'll leave it at that. There's a blessing that comes from that. That's my first question. So do you know what is making you weary and burdened? Second, are you willing to choose Jesus over the culture? Because his friends that were in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they didn't. And third, what is the one thing you're going to right-size this week? What could you right-size this week? That song says, there's no shame in looking like a fool. We look exactly like our neighbors, exactly like our culture, because we do exactly the exact same things that they do, and we're just as exhausted as they are. But Jesus says, I'm giving you this invitation to come and learn from me, little children. Reject the wisdom of the wise and learn from me from my life, and you will find rest for your souls. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would help us to learn from you. 
for us to understand that it's, there's, there's no shame in looking like a fool. That we would take what we know about you and learning from you from our head and move it to our heart and help us to actually live like it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.